Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This podcast contains explicit language. The government is on the verge of another shutdown, which is lots of fun for people who like political drama, but less so for people who work in government, benefit from government services, or think that Congress should be able to do its job. Then we travel to South America. Nicholas Casey from the New York Times is here to tell us what the hunt for Venezuela's most wanted ban tells us about the political and economic crisis in the country. And the White House was employing a dude who couldn't get a full security clearance because he allegedly abused women. But the president is still there. I'm Elise Foley. And I'm Arthur Delaney. And this is So That Happened, a politics podcast about politics. <laughs> <laughs> a politics podcast about ha <laughs> ha. And this is So That Happened, a HuffPost podcast about current events and affairs of state. Hello, everybody. It's Arthur. I'm with Elise, and we're joined by a special guest, Jason Lincolns, a senior editor with Think Progress. Jason, hello. Yeah, allow me to reintroduce myself. You may remember Jason. Yeah. <laughs> Jason. As a former host of this podcast. Yeah. You created this podcast two years ago. Uh, I mean, I think Ibrahim created it, and I just sort of like took credit for that. But yeah. Well, it's fitting that, like that it's fitting to have you here. This is, dear listener, this is going to be the last episode of So That Happened before it goes on an indefinite hiatus, and we'll have more details on that in a little bit. So it's very bittersweet to have you here, Chase. I'm sorry you're going on an indefinite hiatus. Well, I'm not, I'm not going on an indefinite hiatus. I'm sorry the show is going on an indefinite <laughs> hiatus. Yeah, I was on an indefinite hiatus for a bit, but... You went on one, and uh, and, yeah. ha- and that, was, that was fun, right? Yeah, exactly. So... Uh, <laughs> Things just the same thing happens over and over, and in politics in Washington, the government's going to shut down again. Maybe, right after Thursday night, maybe, unless Democrats cave again. I'm uh, super excited about this whole like we're going to have a government shutdown every three weeks because of the sheltering incompetence of if the Trump administration. Donald Trump explicitly stated this week that he would love a shutdown. And we'll quickly play that clip. If we don't get rid of these loopholes where killers are allowed to come into our country and continue to kill gang members. And we're just talking about MS-13. There are many gang members that we don't even mention. If we don't change it, let's have a shutdown. We'll do a shutdown. And it's worth it for our country. I'd love to see a shutdown if we don't get this stuff taken care of. So we have to strengthen our borders, not by a little bit, but by a lot. We are so far behind the time. And by the way, the world is laughing at us because they can't believe these policies. They don't have it. I could name 15 of them right now. No other country in the world has what we have. And we're going to get it stopped. And if we have to shut it down because the Democrats don't want safety and unrelated but still related, they don't want to take care of our military, then shut it down. Do you know what's amazing about Donald Trump wanting a government shutdown is I'm pretty sure that in his mind – I'm pretty sure that Donald Trump, like, as a strategic thinker, is one of those people who, when he gets an idea in his head, he just blurts it out. And I'm pretty sure that what he'll do when the government shutdown is 
go back to blaming Democrats for doing it and will completely brush off the fact that he himself, you know, literally called up the radio station and said, I want you to play government shutdown for me. (laughs) I really really love that old hit. Because the whole message from the White House has been that it's wrong for Democrats to try to bring immigration into government funding. Democrats were so bad, they shut down the government over immigration. Immigration shouldn't be part of it. So then he goes and says, I'd love a government shutdown over immigration. So it's it's terrible messaging. And the, immediately, you know, the White House had to say, no, we don't want a government shutdown. Yeah. Well, he it, it was an example of the low standard set for Trump. If anyone else had said that, it would have been a big deal. But because it was a president who is incompetent, <laughs> who says incorrect, stupid, and dishonest things on a daily basis, everyone just brushed off. They're like, eh. You know, that's not really the position of the White House. Yeah, that's yeah it's kind of amazing it. the president can say something, and it's like, well, let's confirm, though, what the White House <laughs> thinks. That yeah. sounds like something somebody John paid Kelly hush money to a porn star would say. John Kelly's not having a good Yeah, it was, it was no. treated as uh, an, something that was of no consequence whatsoever, and Sarah Huckabee Sanders said, you know, that's not really what we want. And then we had some big <laughs> updates, though. So... In the Senate, Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer, the leaders of the Democrat and Republican Party, said that they announced on Wednesday that they had a deal on budget caps, which potentially could, you know, cause us avert a government shutdown and avert future government shutdowns, uh, increase the spending. It has a lot of stuff Democrats want, and that means that. This will get through the Senate pretty easily, go back to the House, and potentially be a massive mess. There's a huge, there's a huge chip reauthorization on the table. There is. They, right. they extended the duration of the reauthorization they'd previously done, which is a big deal. Well, how long did they extend it for? Wasn't uh, it, they, it's an additional four years. So, so it's they've done years. six. Now they added four. And there's a ton <clears throat> of spending in there. There's a bunch of tax stuff. There are fixes for the tax bill. That are uh, sort of small. There's extenders of unrelated tax provisions that are always expiring. It's an incredible amount of money. There's nothing on immigration at all, right? Which Donald Trump was saying he wanted some harsh immigration changes. He proactively wanted them. That's why he wanted the shutdown. That was my understanding of what he said. Did I get sort of? But uh, you know, the White House position has been that let's do that separately. So it wasn't this the White is... House position, right? What he said, again, was not the White House position. So this was, uh, you know, Chuck Schumer had a little uh, jab at the White House and said they worked this out basically without White House uh, help. But this is the thing that the White House, you know, wants to get through. Now the problem is that they're sending it to their, you know, plan will be to send it to the House and Democrats will be in the position of either helping it pass by voting for it, even though it doesn't have anything to protect dreamers, or being, you know, the obstructionist, et cetera, et cetera. I just, before Basically we fi- saving Paul Ryan, though, because, you know, he would be able to pass it on its own if he could get Republicans. Before we finish with Trump there, he tweeted his endorsement of the deal. Right. Or somebody so using now- his Twitter account pushed send uh, on an endorsement. So now he's on board with this deal. That's right. It really is going to come down, as far as we can tell, on Thursday morning, it's going to come down to the House, where the House Freedom Caucus, which is controls like 30 to 40 votes, says no. Yeah, they've all rejected They're going to lose a substantial number of Republicans, and they need Democrats, which it looks like 
they're going to be able to get a lot of, even though Nancy Pelosi has said she's against the deal because it does nothing for dreamers. The problem is that even if she says she's against it, that's different than her urging all the Democrats to vote no, which she's done previously. It's sounding as of Thursday morning like she's not doing that uh, this time around. So, you know, letting members kind of do what they think is right. And I, I, I mean, my prediction would be that that ends with a bunch of Democrats saving Paul Ryan and uh, and ultimately voting for it. But we'll find out. So we're reckoning this is like a non-Hastert rule situation. Oh, it's a non, It's for sure a non-Hastert rule situation. Why these are allowed to arise sometimes and not other well, times. Well, interestingly, <laughs> what Nancy Pelosi is asking for is for Paul Ryan to drop the Hastert rule on immigration because there's kind of a wide acknowledgement that something to protect dreamers could pass the House – pretty easily, but it can't get a vote because Paul Ryan won't let it get a vote. We should talk about, I mean, the Hastert rule is just undemocratic. Okay, we have a a couple things to parse here. First, let's parse the Hastert rule. It's named after a child predator who also used to be (laughs) Speaker of the House, and the rule is not an actual rule. They do have a lot of rules that they have to abide. Even Hastert himself kind of disowned it and said, I'm not, I don't think this rule should be universally applied. They they took his painting off the wall. It's still like, uh, it's not a rule, it's a custom that Republicans follow in which the Speaker only brings stuff to the floor if it can pass with the majority of the majority. Yeah. This is not a rule of the House. It's not an actual rule. So, but they 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 tend to follow it, and I think the practical reason is that they need to maintain the support of their hard right guys so that they don't uh, move to get rid of the speaker, which they have the power to do to force a vote on. If they lose the Freedom Caucus in this situation, it, don't they still have a majority of the majority behind this? Um, I think they. That's a math question. Yeah, yeah. That you caught math. me off guard. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think they do. I, th- I think when you've lo- when you're losing the Freedom Caucus, you're losing enough Republicans. It's a total Matt Fuller question. And yeah. the thing is, uh, this ha- is a big spending bill. So with Republicans, there are a bunch of them who are you know supposedly big fiscal hawks, who supposedly don't support things that add to the debt or the deficit. Um, so. That is a problem. Right. Some so of them, you're, some you're of them losing, don't have a problem. You're losing the Jim Jordans and Mark Meadows as the yeah, yeah. Freedom Caucus leaders. You're also losing the Justin Amashes. Yeah. The you know, more libertarian-minded guys. Uh, if Republicans, after all, are supposed to be for fiscal conservatism, and this bill's going to uh, like lead to trillion-dollar deficit this year, increase spending by more than they would almost ever let Barack Obama increase spending, even though we're at near full employment now and – <laughs> it's not as beneficial as it could be. But it anyway. never, never matters when they're in power. Okay, so so that's Hastert rule. We're done parsing that. The, yeah. The okay. other really important thing that Elise talked about is Nancy Pelosi wanting a commitment from Paul Ryan. So there was a commitment from Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Senate. Yeah, so that's how they kind of got themselves out of the shutdown last time. Democrats in the Senate were saying we need some sort of dreamer protections. And then ultimately were willing, you know, decided I think they kind of wanted a way out. And so Mitch McConnell offered it to them in the form of saying he intended to have some sort of vote on an immigration bill. And so he's kind of gotten into more detail more recently um, by saying that he'll have kind of he'll put a basically it sounds like kind of a blank bill out there and let people 
propose amendments, and whatever passes, passes. So this isn't total Lucy with the football? Because as I suspected when <laughs> he said, don't worry, we'll have a vote Yeah, he because he, his original language was, it is my intention to do this. And it was like, okay, but like, are you gonna? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. So it looks like he's doing it. Sounds it sounds like he's gonna do it. But it's, so Lucy's gonna hold the football down, but never agreed to wear on the field. <laughs> yeah. And the, it looks like the goalpost is gonna be a thousand yards away. Because that's that the, the goalpost is Paul Ryan. And things, I mean, also, even in the Senate, things that you just let them have, you know, endless amendments, there's good and bad things of that. That just also is a chance to add a bazillion poison pills and kill this whole thing. But, but, but pres- presumably there's majority support for, for deal yeah. for dreamers, maybe a little more security. Like, I, I thought that. That would mean you, you. There's a strong chance of an actual normal bill. I know Dreamer advocates don't agree, but yeah, I mean it's it's definitely something, and it's significant, and it means that there might be some sort of something that passes the Senate. The problem always uh, on these bills in the past has been that they pass in the Senate and then they go to the House and they die, uh, which happened in 2013 with comprehensive immigration reform, like we've talked about before. So. The issue that Nancy Pelosi wants is some sort of commitment that they would actually do something. Um, there's all these bills that are bipartisan in the House that you know Republicans support, and Paul Ryan just keeps saying, "Well, we'll vote on something that the president supports." The problem is, what what does the president support? You know, the last time there was this government shutdown fiasco, Democrats were were seen by a lot of people on their own side to have caved. Um, in the face of pressure and, and and abandoning dreamers in that instance, and they took a lot of stick for it in the in the in the days afterwards. Is there how do they avoid that same kind of thing here? I mean, if they're only if all we're talking about is like going along with a future promise that may not may not come. I mean, Nancy Pelosi, there's little Democrats can do because they don't hold any power. Nancy Pelosi staged a gigantic sort of. Loophole House filibuster yesterday. Eight hours. The longest speech in House of Representatives history. Um, and and what's funny is that uh, you know I see a lot of I see a lot of people think about talk about that as sort of an empty gesture. I mean, from a legislative standpoint, it's an empty gesture. But uh, it was at least a little bit of that old fashioned fight yesterday. How do do you think Democrats can get through another government shutdown situation? currently positioned they are the way they are right now and avoid taking stick for caving? No. <laughs> All right. Well, there you have it. Wait, no, wait, wait, wait a minute. Had... If, they, if the government shuts down, Democrats didn't necessarily oh, cave. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's true. The that's government true. funding. Democrats are poised. Uh, if the government shuts down, the Democrats politically are in a much stronger position because it, it will have been a lot of Republicans voting against the bill and – not a capitulation by Nancy Pelosi. It doesn't look like that's going to happen, though. Yeah. If if it does pass, I think the stick will remain. You know, I've always felt like like playing a part in a government shutdown is really kind of playing with fire. It's really rebounded back on people badly, but. These days, this town's full of arsonists. There's nothing left to play with but fire. Yeah, the last government shutdown feels like a million years ago (sighs) and that it was inconsequential. Monday feels like a million years ago. (laughs) But this time, uh, another reason this time is different is that, like we said, the president is all for it. I mean, sort of. I I, honestly, (laughs) 
I can't believe I'm. I well, I can can't believe I'm saying this. I'm saying it for a year. It it seems like he kind of just doesn't know what the situation is. Like he <laughs> he said that he wanted it over immigration, but it's like, man, they're not dealing with immigration here. Oh. Like he's saying he wants to shut down the government over getting his border wall, but nobody's putting the border wall in the government funding bill. So it's I don't know what he's talking about. Maybe he thinks there's like some future time that like every single time they vote on anything, it could lead to a government shutdown if it fails. So I genuinely don't know. I've always said this about Donald Trump and there's I I will leave an exception to this rule for the border wall because I do think he has thought about it a little bit. I think that he the the extent to which he's thought about it, he's is he surmised it needs to be transparent in places <laughs> so that if someone on the other side throws something over it doesn't hit someone on the head I literally people think... make fun of that but that's like an actual thing yes I think that I think that a lot of people who interview Donald Trump they come at it from the wrong position if they're they, they the, the topic will be immigration they'll ask sort of like a the sort of question that you would ask a normal president or they talk about health care and they'll ask the sort of question they ask a normal president and Donald Trump just offers up word salad. But really where you need to start with Donald Trump is is you need to ask him, uh, where is Mexico? <laughs> you know, what does a doctor do? And, like, I honestly, you know, honestly, people treat this like it's like a long-running comedy routine of mine. But I'm very sincere about that. You know, Maggie Haberman needs to to – to literally sit him down like, how does a bill become a law, Donald? That's the kind of thing that reporters should be asking him because the extent to which he's thought about any of this is I, – I don't think I don't think it's – I don't think he has. I think he just sort he's of like – He's a big picture guy. It's all right. Right. Yeah, he's a big picture guy. The big you know, picture he, is – He does create guy. opportunities to do that because he will frequently say, I know everything about the tax bill. And then you can say, what's the standard deduction? <laughs> just <laughs> what is it? Exactly. You don't know what it is, man. Right. You don't right. have a damn clue. Yes, I know it's true. And then um, the reporter would really scream at him, right? Yeah, like I mean, that. you know what? Standard deduction might even be too high level uh, 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 a concept for him. Now he got it right. Like, in the what state of the color U- is the 1040 EZ? Is maybe where I'd start. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's white. Is that the salmon so, one or the blue? See, I don't even is know. It I haven't the done the t- EZ no. in a while. The 1040 I is, I think, blue or green. See, I, even I'm an idiot. My W-2 is green. I just did my taxes the other day. Congratulations. What are you doing your taxes so early for? you got to do them. You should do them before the last minute. Yeah. Well, tell me about that. For our listeners, a little recommendation. (laughs) That's right, listeners. Do your taxes now and and fund this government that you hate. Yeah, it might shut down, but I guess we still have to pay for it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Bold prediction. This prediction might be obsolete. If they strike a deal before the podcast is released today, but bold predictions: the government going to shut down? I don't think so. Same. Yeah, I don't think it's going to shut down either. One of us should argue that it will. The government. Uh, okay. Uh, go- um. Uh. Sorry. Uh. Yes, it's going to shut down. Yeah. The sucker's going down. And uh, and who's going to get blamed? Who's going to win the blame game? Okay. Well, since you stuck me in this in this position where I have to like, you said you were ready. <laughs> um. I, I honestly think at this juncture, and and I'll tell you something. Like I would say, a few weeks before the last government shutdown, it was I was really nervous about how the Democrats would come to be depicted in this. But I do think if there was a government shutdown and it was over the matter of immigration, I do think the Democrats would come out ahead on it. Um, but you have to understand they were in a stronger position the last time. 
to to make this work for them. There's a certain amount of ennui that's baked into the cake anytime the government shuts down, and there's a certain amount of of uh, just dreadfulness that goes on when people are out of work and they're furloughed. Uh, and here in Washington, when when a whole big substantial part of the people who are participating in the economy are are no longer able to pay for things, it becomes a really, really dreary matter for everyone who's trying to make money in this city. And I have to imagine that elsewhere, where wherever there are people who work for the federal government stationed, they experience these same kind of losses. So I, I think the Democrats might have been in a better position to po- capitalize politically on it a few weeks ago if they had gone to the mattresses for it. I still think that they will not look like the people who are doing the bulk of the obstructing, but they were in a better position. Oh, Jason, you did back a, back when it was when it was like Republican on Republican fighting. You did a good job. That. You did a good job gaming that out. I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, I, I now go back the to nice my original position. It's not going to happen. Is that uh, we won't have to come on here and be embarrassed if we're wrong? That's, That's right. right. Yeah, you'll never catch us. Yeah, (laughs) you'll never catch us. Yeah, you'll just be yelling at an empty podcast shell on iTunes. Actually, you can send. They'll they'll probably still email you and and gripe. Yeah, they could leave a one star rating, which would suck. Please don't. Don't do that. Yeah, don't leave a one star rating for these people. Um, (laughs) All right, Jason Lincoln's. You're the senior editor at Think Progress. Yes. Thank you for coming in. Former Huff poster. Yeah. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. It was fun. We'll be right back. So That Happened is going on indefinite hiatus, but our desire for five-star ratings in iTunes will never die, so rate us. No hiatus. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm here with our producer, Zach Young. Hi, Uh, Arthur. Zach, we're going to miss you a lot. You're going to a new job. Where is that at? Uh, First Look Media. That's cool. And you're going to do you're going to do podcasts over there. I'm, I am. That's what I'm going to do. Now, you have a story for us uh, for this podcast, which is a real treat. And uh, it's got a special guest as well. Can you please give us an introduction? Yeah, yes, I can. So probably you saw in the news last April that there were these massive street demonstrations in Venezuela against the government of Nicolas Maduro, who took power after Hugo Chavez died in 2013. 
Uh, they response to the economic crisis, to chronic scarcity and rationing of basic goods, to the uh, dramatic rise in the crime rate. But the, the thing that sparked them more immediately was that the Supreme Court, which is dominated by supporters of the ruling Socialist Party, moved to abolish the National Assembly, which is controlled by the opposition. And that caused the political anger that had been simmering for a while to spill into the streets. And so that was nearly a year ago. But last month, I read this story that got me glued to the news from Venezuela all over again. It's a story about a guy named Oscar Perez. Uh, Perez was until last year a police officer and surprisingly a B-movie actor. He appeared in these low-budget action films in Venezuela, like this one called Muerte Suspendida, which means something like death postponed. But he became a household name for his role in the protests last year, which really made him into the most wanted man in the country. President Maduro would talk about him on TV. And that's a status he held until this January, when he was finally hunted down by the police and killed. He was like a reflection of the divisions that exist now in Venezuela. To some people, he was a hero. To some, he was a terrorist. Uh, to some, he was just a joke. So to talk about him, I called up Nicholas Casey. He's a reporter who lives in Colombia. Yeah, I'm Nick Casey. I cover the Andes region for the New York Times. And he took me back to the beginning for Oscar Perez. Yeah, his is a fascinating story. Oscar Perez. What what do we know about him? Oscar Perez was uh, a B-movie actor and a cop for, for many years. And he went from, you know, that role in Venezuela to being, you know, a hero to a lot of Venezuelans who were on the streets protesting against Maduro. Massive protests have erupted in Venezuela amid the worst economic crisis in the last half century there. He became famous. Uh, one day last June, Venezuelans woke up on a clear day in Caracas and saw that there was a helicopter that was flying and, uh, you know, blowing things up in different parts of Caracas. It appears the helicopter was stolen and piloted by an officer from Venezuela's investigative police force. This was Oscar Perez. He'd stolen the helicopter. Police helicopter pilot Oscar Perez went rogue. Uh, he went first, I believe, to the Supreme Court. President Maduro said that a grenade was thrown at the building but did not explode. Uh, and then he went to a government building and fired blanks on the government building. Oscar Perez has posted a statement calling for action against what he called the criminal government. No one was uh, was hurt. Uh, he says, you know, all of the uh, weapons that he used were blanks. Uh, but he did get everybody's attention. Uh, people were wondering how someone was able to pull such a stunt. And not only did he do that, uh, he flew a message uh, off of a small, uh, well, actually a pretty, pretty big uh, banner that he'd made, which could be seen. Uh, from the ground, saying for Venezuelans to rebel against the government. It had an article in the Constitution uh, which allows Venezuelans to uh, overthrow or get rid of tyrants. Uh, at that point, he was saying Maduro was a tyrant. He, he flew the banner, and then he flew away, uh, landed the helicopter in a abandoned field, and uh, disappeared. Uh, then he picked up again uh, through video messages that he was emitting uh, on Instagram and other platforms. Continuing to tell Venezuelans to, to rise up against their government and had been a thorn uh, in the government side since because of this. What was the image of Perez amongst 
more mainstream, let's say, members of the opposition in Venezuela? Because it's not perhaps the story that you would write if you were trying to come up with a convenient hero for the opposition movement. Well, it depends. Um, if you were an opposition politician, I, I don't think that you found Oscar Perez's story uh, to go along with the narrative that you wanted, because Oscar Perez was asking for a rebellion and opposition politicians want fair elections. Um, if you were someone who considered yourself an opposition or supporter of the opposition who was on the streets, I, I think you saw Oscar Perez as kind of a folk hero because he was sort of saying all the things that you wanted to hear, um, including possibly going out to to rebel, uh, even though that never happened in Venezuela he captured everybody's everybody's imagination there and, and definitely brought a lot of hope to the protesters. So you have President Maduro on TV calling Perez a criminal and a murderer. And all of this finally caught up with him last month. The government tracked him to the house he was hiding out in west of Caracas, and there was a firefight between him and the police, which we found out about in a series of pretty intense Instagram videos. Um, some of them showed his, a bloodied face. He'd obviously been injured. Um, and he talked about the fact that he had come under attack. They're shooting at us with RPGs, grenade launchers and snipers. There are civilians inside here. We said we'd turn ourselves in, but they don't want to let us. They want to kill us. When the protests began back in April, there was a feeling on the part of a lot of people that this power grab by the government had backfired, that this was the last straw and that the backlash against Maduro was the beginning of the end. And it was easy to believe that. I mean, in the images of the protests, it looked as though the entire country had turned out in the streets. But now it's nearly a year later. Uh, Maduro seems to have basically weathered the storm. The process of drafting a new constitution continues. Has that surprised you? Were you one of the people who thought things would go differently? I never tried to make any predictions, but if I were to have made a prediction, what came out wouldn't have been what I would have said was going to go on or what I would have guessed. I wouldn't have guessed that Maduro would have been able to make it to the other side the way that he has. Um, you know, this was a country that I lived in for about a year. And during that year, which was significantly better than, than where things are now, I just saw the country get worse and, and worse almost on a weekly basis uh, in terms of not being able to find food and going to a hospital and not being able to get treatment there because your doctor couldn't get gloves because those weren't being imported. That kind of anger and lower levels of anger had in recent years toppled governments from Egypt uh, to Syria. You, you, you saw complaints that were not nearly on the scale of what Venezuelans have uh, immediately bring leaders to task during the Arab Spring. So I think it was hard to believe for a lot of people that Maduro uh, was not going to at least have to step down or step aside or call new elections immediately or resolve this in some way. Um, instead, what he did was he dug even deeper. Uh, he created a new Congress, which answered to him, essentially. And now rules through them. And he's created what almost all of Venezuela's neighbors are describing as a dictatorship now. 
And he seems for the moment to have gotten away with that. The street protests have fizzled and uh, he's pushing on to a snap election that they're hoping to have in April, where most of the opposition candidates who would have been viable alternatives have been banned or run out of the country or put into detention. Now, you, Nick, were not actually able to report firsthand on the protests last year. And there's a pretty interesting reason for that. Uh, I was I was removed from the country by the government. Uh, I had come originally on a visa, which the embassy in, in Washington, uh, the Venezuelan embassy had given to me, inviting me to come and work. Uh, I proceeded to do my job, which was to cover the crisis in Venezuela um, and all of these you know, topics that we've mentioned, uh, you know, down to even places like mental hospitals where patients were falling into delusions because they couldn't get their medicine and were being tied to chairs in, in state-run hospitals because the doctors couldn't care for them. Sometime along the line, uh, this line of reporting seems to have angered the government. We don't know exactly when it was because it's not a transparent place. Um, they did put my photo on television um, saying that I was someone not to be trusted and someone who worked closely with fascists and the opposition, uh, which wasn't true. We always tried to get the government side on any story that we had worked on. The TV show you mentioned where they showed your picture, was that Mario Silva's show, La Ojilla, the the razor blade? No, it was, but it was, it's kind of a, a sister TV show. Uh, it's Diosdado Cabello's show, which ah. is uh, run every every Wednesday night. Cabello is the uh, vice president of the Socialist Party. Um, similar idea, basically. You've got uh, a chavista who goes on TV and starts his rants, um, and it, there are different there are different figures every night who are on the rant. Sometimes it's uh, secret recordings they've gotten of opposition politicians talking to each other on the phone. Uh, in some ways, this really resembles like Soviet, the Soviet Union in, in, in the way that they, they run conversations with people uh, to other things, to recordings of politicians talking and sometimes journalists that they don't like. Um, but at some point along the line, they you know continued with this and this kind of harassment, which is done to many journalists in Venezuela, not just me. Uh, but they did take it to a different level when I was returning to Venezuela uh, in 2016, at the end of 2016, and they told me I couldn't cross the border. Uh, I was deported, uh, taken to Bogota, and then after that flown to New York uh, and haven't been allowed to come back into the country since. Recently, it seems like there's been more willingness on the part of Maduro and the Venezuelan Socialist Party to draw a parallel between their movement and the Soviet Union. For example, last year, there was a big celebration of the 100th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution, featuring giant banners and images of Hugo Chavez next to Lenin. A 100 años de la revolución bolchevique, construiremos el socialismo en el siglo XXI. It seems to me like this is a new phenomenon. Am I right in thinking that? Well, I think the um, uh, the the socialists in Venezuela have always traced their roots um, to 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 Russia. Um, you know, they were Russia aligned as opposed to China aligned um, in terms of their own uh, you know ideology, going back to the uh, kind of twentieth century debates within within communism. Um, that's been that's been you know kind of a long way in the going, and also the parallel between the United States's rivalry with the Soviet Union and well its own rivalry, which is a 
I couldn't quite call a rivalry, but it's disputes with, with, with Venezuela because of the scale. It's not really a rivalry. Um, so I think they have seen, you know, for some time a common cause between, uh, you know, kind of the, uh, the Soviets who were always sort of under uh, attack and siege during the Cold War by the U.S. and their own position uh, that they've got, uh, you know, being uh, kind of an anti-imperialist power, as they call themselves. Uh, you know, they're trying to pry to counterbalance the U.S., I know you don't like to make predictions, but do you think you will be able to enter the country again? You're working for Medellin, Colombia now, is that correct? That's right. That's where I've you know had to move. That's where I live now. Um, I'm not able to live in Caracas again. I- I'm still making attempts to to get into the country, and you know I'd say in the last six to to four to six months there has been a bigger opening for foreign journalists to get into the country. So I'm hoping I might be part of that. There's an election coming up uh, and I'll be asking to to try to cover that. Usually governments, even the most, um, you know, authoritarian ones in the world, which actually Venezuela isn't, uh, usually make openings for journalists to cover elections. So I'm hoping at least one time this year, I'll be able to see the place. Thanks, Nick. Thanks so much. Yeah. Nicholas Casey is the Andes Bureau Chief for the New York Times. He currently lives in and reports from Medellin, Colombia. here with Svidate. Hey. And Arthur. Hi. And we are going to talk about the news this week that uh, the staff secretary at the White House, Rob Porter, resigned because of accusations that he abused two of his ex-wives. Um, and the especially interesting thing about the story is that he, uh, White House officials knew about this, uh, knew about these allegations for a really long time, um, and we're still letting him be an official. So it's uh, another instance of allowing, you know, an alleged abuser to be in the White House. Uh, yeah. And so, I, I, I mean, what what is the timeline here of when what we know about what other people knew? Right. My understanding is that the original chief of staff, Reince Priebus, and the original uh, co-chief of staff or chief strategist, as his title was at the time, Steve Bannon, knew about there being some issues with Rob Porter's background and his and his security clearance application in the early months of the presidency. Now, of course, Steve Bannon also had issues with uh, domestic violence. If we remember that he was accused by his one of his ex-wives of, of uh, I guess, I can't remember whether it was particularly strangling her or, or, or some such, but it was there. There was like court documents about this, and yet he was the chief strategist. Um, I mean, fundamentally, the president of the United States has been credibly accused by a number of women, uh, a couple of them, by, of sexual assault. So I think the problem here is when you've got that at the top, how do you then credibly make the case that people below him should not be have any stains on their permanent record, so to speak, when the guy at the top didn't have to pass any security clearance? He just got to be president. And... I, that's kind of the problem is it's hard to find people to work in the White House, and that's why he was allowed to stay at first. And then he was encouraged to stay by John Kelly because he was one of the few people who he could trust to help bring some order to the chaos that had been the White House, the total chaos that had been the White House for the first six months. Not a justification for Kelly to do what he did, but 
uh, Rob Porter at least wasn't going to bring and print out Breitbart stories and put them on the president's desk just to get him mad like some other people had been doing. Why, is that important when he watches Fox and Friends? That's a really wacky show. Right, and maybe he's got more time to watch Fox and Friends because he's not reading Breitbart. I, I don't know, but you know, they knew that he doesn't know how to surf the internet and print out his own stories or read them, so that was one <laughs> way of getting bad information off the table, so to speak. Uh, maybe they'll cut the cable at the White House so he won't be able to watch. I don't know, but I'm just saying that this was the reason that he was allowed to stay because he was good at the job he was supposed to be doing, notwithstanding his personal violence issues you know, at home. So this week, a story came out in the Daily Mail that was laying out these allegations, and then another story in The Intercept that had photos of one of the ex-wives, very badly bruised, really disturbing photos. Oh, right. She had a and, black eye or was about to have one from the... Yeah, and the, the right. White House, they had put out statements really defending Porter at first and saying he was a really great guy. They did. I mean, it was it was amazing reading the Daily Mail story where these... these uh, and and they, these were not obviously... You know, off the cuff, you know, testimonials they had thought out and said these wonderful things about Rob Porter. We're talking both the chief of staff as well as Sarah Sanders, the the press secretary, about how great he was and how you know they they stood by him one hundred percent. And then the intercept story came out, which had the photos, as you point out, and they were still defending him. And it was only yesterday when they came around and they said, "Well, maybe this is not such a hot idea after all," and uh, he was going to leave. But if you remember, Sarah Sanders said. In a period of, I believe she said, in a period of weeks uh, it was going to take so that he could help with the transition. And today, my understanding is today is, is, is today the, yeah, today's the 8th. It's his last day, and that's that. So uh, we've gone from he's a great guy to Rob Porter, Rob Porter who, within a span of a few days. So it's possible that he could not even get a security clearance because the FBI found out about this. Both these women told them that he beat them up. Right. And that's a no-no. It could make you vulnerable to blackmail. Correct. Is apparently one of the reasons the FBI doesn't like that. Right. Right. And, uh, again, a a high-level security clearance takes months to do. There's a lot involved. They go through everything. My understanding is it was in the October-November time frame that uh, OPM came back with a list of people and said, these people have problems, and they're not going to get the security clearances they need in order to do their job. They'd, they'd all been there under interim clearances, but the permanent one was not going to happen. And that's the information that was given to the chief of staff. Okay, so some of those folks on that list were already gone. Sebastian Gorka, for example, um, was no longer an issue because he was not on the White House anymore. He was also on that list. But Rob Porter was. And at that time, my understanding is Rob Porter said, I will leave. I will leave in December, and that'll give you a chance to find somebody else to do this job. And apparently Kelly said, no, I need you to stay. And so, you know, please reconsider. And he did. And that only changed until uh, – that didn't change until that Daily Mail story came out. So do we know – does the FBI, when they come back with a list like that, say this is why? Like, do, do we know that Kelly knew that that specific issue was there for Porter? We don't know that he knew, but yes, the information is fully available. I mean, if Kelly had asked why, he would have been told, here's why. We don't know for a fact that Kelly asked why. 
Uh, Seems like a good thing would. to ask. Right, it would I be, would but I, you know, I, I can't tell you, I can't sit here and tell you that, that, that he did or didn't ask. Uh, I do know that uh, Rob Porter was a was a key player in Kelly's strategy to take control of the nonsense of, of the of the Steve Bannon, Ryan Priebus playpen that had been going on for months. So, And so now Kelly is getting a lot of grief, though, Correct. because he did. I mean, even if he didn't know back in October, he certainly knew about the allegations when he put out a statement defending Porter this week. So oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. A lot of grief, I think, rightly. Uh, y- yes. And let's remember that Donald Trump, the president of the United States, couldn't get anywhere near a security clearance had he just been an employee. Okay, I mean, you can't have people saying that, oh, yes, he sexually assaulted me. You can't have bankruptcies on your record. You can't have all kinds of the stuff that Donald Trump has and expect to be able to access top secret information because the FBI, as Arthur points out, doesn't want you to be blackmailed. I've been interviewed. (laughs) There's a lot of stuff out there for blackmail potential on Donald Trump. I've been interviewed for other people's security clearances, and the questions are things like, you know, how was that person? Did they drink? Did they do drugs? And I've heard of other people having their clearances denied right. because they drank in college. Right. You know, they yeah. drank maybe a little too much or went out too much. I have a friend who, uh, a source, who uh, who tells me that he applied for, a, a was waiting on his top secret uh, TS slash SCI clearance and was told after months of, of investigation, they came back to him and said, you withheld information from us of an encounter with law enforcement. Well, that encounter with law enforcement had been, he'd been ticketed for illegally fishing when he was 17 years old. Ticketed. It was not a criminal thing. It was a, a civil infraction. And he hadn't put it on the report. And so they were going to come back and hound him as to why. So, yeah, this is thorough. It goes back forever. And you are basically, when you sign that FS-86 form, you're basically giving them permission to dig up every bit of financial information that the United States government has on you. That would include tax returns. Is the problem partially just that nobody uh, wants to work in the Trump White House? Well, that's exactly the yeah. problem. <laughs> that no one wants to. I mean, this is a potential career killer. I mean, if you believe in competency in government, if you, and furthermore, if you believe in what the Republican Party says it used to stand for, neither of those two things are what's happening in the Trump White House. So people think, all right, well, there'll be another Republican president. I'll work for that person in two years or six years or whenever, but I'm not going to destroy my career and try to defend the indefensible. And there are a lot of people who fit in that category. Do you think it's a coincidence that this information came out at the height of the feud between Trump and the FBI? No, I don't. I, I think that a fair amount of the of the sourcing of this has come from, you know, the Hoover Building, and you know that's that's not an accident. And I've had sources tell me, you know, if you pick a fight with the FBI and the intelligence community in this country, you're going to lose. Especially if you're someone with the history of a Donald Trump with so much stuff. Now, this one's an easy one for the FBI to point out because one of the former, one of the ex-wives of Porter, had detailed the allegations in a blog post that didn't name him. Mm-hmm. But it would be easy for an FBI tipster to say, "Hey, look at this! It's it's right out oh, there." Oh, they they would have to send a link, right? But yeah. they would have been interviewing her to begin with, as you point out. They every single person with a relationship at that level is going to be interviewed. It's not a matter of 
hunting around looking oh, for Oh, I'm just right? saying yeah, yeah. The, his wife beating past was Correct. out there well, already. There, there's a court order. I mean, it, I mean, it wasn't, you know, it's out it, There's no, you know, deep sourcing necessary for some of this stuff. And remember, he used to work in the United States Senate. And so did he get a security clearance for those jobs? We're not really sure. We're, we're investigating that, but that would be interesting if he managed to get one when he was uh, Orrin Hatch's chief of staff. Oh, so oh. does by resigning, does that mean that he's just kind of, you know, gets off scot-free now? I mean, I, I know that we're not talking about prosecuting him or something, but does he just kind of get to disappear from the limelight and now the heat is on people like Kelly for defending him? Oh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. when you sign that form, you're you're asserting that everything on there is true, and presumably it's under penalty of perjury. Is anyone going to prosecute him? Uh, probably not. Uh, Scott Free. I mean, uh, career wise, uh, yeah. I imagine Car- it's not I don't, great. Uh, he's gonna his reputation is wise, pretty ruined. Not great. Yeah. yeah. Except with a few people. Perhaps you could go work at the Trump organization. So that kind of background doesn't necessarily hurt you there. I mean, so... You could go back and work for Orrin Hatch. Uh, Orrin Hatch is leaving. Orrin Hatch is leaving. Orrin Hatch today came out with a statement saying, well, I didn't know this, and maybe it's the violence stuff is bad, and I'm, I'm happy to help him, but, you know, this is for the best. So I mean, it's just you know. over and over. The defense is always, he's a really great guy. He didn't hit right. me. Right. That's, That's basically what it yeah, was. Yeah, people just kind of don't care what people do in their private lives to women, especially. That's my argument. But There, there <laughs> have been uh, some people pointing out that wife beaters are bad. Yeah. There I would argue case to be made. Yeah. beaters of anyone are bad. People don't who, hit anybody. People who commit physical violence against other people are bad. <laughs> That's, That's a, real, a firm yeah. stance of the So That Happened podcast. Don't beat people up. All right. Well, thank you guys. Thank you, SV Date. Thanks, Arthur. Thanks. You're welcome. For me. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Arthur Delaney, and this week we were joined by HuffPost reporters Elise Foley, SV Date, and Zach Young. Plus, Think Progress's Jason Lincolns and New York Times Andy's Bureau Chief Nicholas Casey. This is our last episode for a while. Big thank you to our original hosts, Jason Lincolns and Zach Carter, and also to Zach Young, who's moving to a new position with First Look Media. Bye. <laughs> Bye, Zach. HuffPost is hiring a podcast producer for the D.C. office, so if you're looking for a job and you're a podcast producer, come work with us. Also, please follow me on Twitter. It's Arthur Delaney HP, and I'm just desperate for followers. <laughs> Elise doesn't need any more followers. She's got I'm a better... Set. Right. If you like... Uh, Don't at me. Professionalism and restraint, I have the Twitter account for you. <laughs> for more HuffPost podcasts, check out the excellent Bachelor recaps on Here to Make Friends. It's all about Jacqueline this season. She's going to take it all. (laughs) Bring back Crystal. Thanks to all of you for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.